This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Greetings, Michigan Radio Land. This is the week it was. St. Agnes's Eve. Ah, bitter chill it was. The owl, for all his feathers, was a cold. The hare limped, trembling through the frozen grass. And silent was the flock in woolly fold. Numb were the beadsman's fingers while he told his rosary and while his frosted breath like pious incense from a censer old seemed taking flight for heaven without a death. Now that was the opening stanza from John Keats's famous poem, The Eve of St. Agnes, written in the year 1819. Yes, it's poetry, it's fiction, but there really is a St. Agnes Eve, and every year... It is January 20th, and January 20th is really not very far away from the past week to 10 days here in Michigan where it was cold, 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 and John Keats's poem pretty well sums it up, one of the most famous descriptions of frigid cold in the English language. Uh, here in Michigan, uh, government was totally shut down most of the week, the Michigan State House of Representatives, the State Senate, all of the executive branch of state government were shut down. And uh, nationally, uh, we had to rely, as we did here in Michigan, on other things happening to give us a dose of news about politics and government because there was no government and no politics in Michigan this week. Uh, nationally, there was a survey done by Morning Consult for uh, Politico, a website, and it was conducted January 25th to 27th among nearly 2,000 registered voters with a margin of error of only plus or minus 2%. Here in Michigan, there was a poll conducted by the Glenn Gariff Group, uh, which is run by Richard Juba. It was done about the same time. A sample of 600 voters in Michigan with plus or minus about 4%. And uh, let's switch the subject slightly from weather to government shutdown at the national level, not here in Michigan because of the weather, but nationally because Congress and President Trump could not agree on a budget. So one quarter of the government was shut down for more than a month. As I think everybody knows, that was a record. And it was all because President Trump obviously insists on some sort of border wall with Mexico, which the Congress is not giving him, at least the $5.7 billion that he is requesting. So Morning Consult asked, voters nationwide. Uh, what do you think about all this? Well, the bottom line is this. Most voters oppose a second shutdown. Uh, they uh, oppose President Trump declaring a national emergency 
in order to get a border wall built. Uh, a 54% majority would blame President Trump and congressional Republicans for a second shutdown compared with about a third, 33%, who would blame congressional Democrats. Uh, so obviously uh, President Trump is not faring too well, at least so far, in terms of numbers. Uh in his strategy to try to compel Congress to give him the $5.7 billion he wants. And uh, the national population does not want a border wall. Now, here in Michigan, the Glenn Gariff group uh, asked pretty much the same question. Uh, they started by asking, well, who do you blame for the shutdown uh, that happened that has now been ended, but we might get another one in another week or so if there's not an agreement between President Trump and Congress, as I think we all know. But who do you blame for the first one? Well, 45% of Michiganders blame President Trump. Uh, 26% blame congressional Democrats. And 22% blame everybody altogether. Uh, congressional Democrats, congressional Republicans, and President Trump. Now, uh, should there be um, a wall built uh, with $5.7 billion, and should government uh, be shut down if it isn't? 58% uh, of the population here in Michigan say, we do not want a, a wall built on any basis, and we do want the government reopened. 37% say we want spending for the border wall, and yes, we'd like to have government reopened. Uh, so if this doesn't happen, uh, who gets blamed? Uh, obviously, President Trump. And by the way, they matched President Trump here in Michigan, the Glengariff poll, against a number of potential rivals, uh, not even naming people, just saying, who would you be for if a reelection of Donald Trump campaign was run in Michigan in the year 2020? 23% said President Trump, 49% said someone else. Now, of course, it's always easy uh, to have someone else run ahead of an incumbent until you find out who the someone else is. Uh, the someone else, as I think everybody knows, in 2016 was Hillary Clinton, and it turned out uh, that was not such a good deal for the Democrats. So we got a long way to go, but that's the way the numbers are running uh, when it comes to reopening the government, uh, closing the government down again, whether to build a border wall, whether not to build a border wall nationally. And here in Michigan, you get a pretty, pretty a good sense of what's going on. Uh, Glenn Gariff also did a poll or a number of questions on a poll about the popularity of Gretchen Whitmer. What are her favorability ratings? What is her job rating? Uh, this poll, again, was done January 24th to 26th. 
Gretchen Whitmer had barely been governor three weeks when this poll was done. She has not given her state of the state message. And now that has been postponed from what was supposed to be February 5th next week until February 12th. And then she's going to put out her budget message after that. So she hasn't done either of these very important things. And yet, uh, already a poll has been done on what Michigan voters think about her. And it's pretty favorable. Uh, 40.5%, that's between 40 and 41%, say they have a positive impression of the new governor, compared with about 20%, which is negative. Uh, Many voters, 32%, are reserving judgment, as well they should. Uh, 38% of voters said they approve of Governor Whitmer's work so far, even though what she's really done is confined to issuing executive orders and presiding over government closure this week during the polar vortex cold snap we've experienced while 13% disapproved and 45% say they did not know. And by the way, I went back and checked on the numbers for uh, Governor Rick Snyder eight years ago at this time and for Governor Jennifer Granholm 16 years ago at this time in early 2003. And I'll tell you what those are later. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to talk about water. Not frozen water, but water. A lot more coming. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We're back, and we've got a special guest. Today, uh, he is Randy Sida, and he is manager of Westside Water in Lansing Township. Randy Sida, welcome to the Political Insider on Michigan Talk Network. Good to be here. Okay, Randy, I know it's very cold wherever you are, but maybe it's a little warmer than it was earlier this week. Uh, yeah. Let me let me just uh, ask you. Uh, what is Westside Water? Will you tell our listeners what exactly it is? Uh, Westside Water is an enterprise fund of the Charter Township of Lansing. Um, Charter Township of Lansing has five separate non-contiguous areas, but Westside Water supplies all the water, and we do all maintenance water mains on the Westside District of Lansing Township. Okay, what about the city of Lansing? Doesn't it rely to a great extent on water that you supervise? Yes, we Westside Water owns seven wells that are all drilled about 400 to 450 foot into the bedrock, down into the bedrock, um, 400, 450 foot deep. Um, and we supply with six wells running, for a month, we can supply the Board of Water and Light, Lansing Board of Water and Light, with about 90 to 100 million gallons a month of water. When you look at other uh, fairly large or, or middle-sized uh, cities around Michigan, let's say Grand Rapids, uh, Jackson, Muskegon, 
Saginaw, Flint, Bay City, Ann Arbor. What is their water situation there? I mean, maybe you can't make a generalization, but how unique is uh, Westside Water and what uh, you do for the Lansing area compared to these other cities, and how do they handle things? Well, Westside Water, you know, we operate and maintain roughly about 26 miles of water main. Um, we have the, the we own the seven wells that we can turn over, but directly into our system. Uh, Westside Water used to treat our own water um, with those seven wells that used to come directly into our plant. Um, but it, we did not soften. Back in 1995, we decided to turn around and well, lease our wells to the Board of Water Light. We bring water back. You know, we're in a unique situation. We sit it. We're a fairly small municipality. Um, we Westside Water handles a smaller area, but we also have emergency interconnects with Delta Township to the west. That if something happens, we can help them and feed them water. We can bring water in from the board of water and light. If need be, in an emergency situation, we can bring the wells back into our system and still feed Delta Township. We're just in a unique situation of how everything works over here. Well, I know you know a lot about water all around the state and even nationally. We'll get to that in a minute. But um, how do some of these other cities handle things? Do they do it pretty much like you do some of them draw from a river, uh, or do they draw from aquifers? What What is their situation? Uh, most, almost all, uh, or most, I should say, cities in Michigan draw from aquifer, from well water, um, subsurface waters. Um, there are some, obviously, that draw surface waters. Um, the city of Flint, as everybody knows, was drawing from uh, the Flint River for a while. Um, there's a lot of water that's pulled between them. I think a lot of them draw, like Saginaw draws from the Saginaw Bay, a surface water. Um, so there are some surface waters which require a totally different treatment, but as drawing from well water that's coming out of an aquifer. Yeah, I think um, our wells draw directly from the Saginaw Aquifer. Okay, I think that, as everybody knows, Flint is now back on southeast Michigan or Detroit water, which draws really from Lake Huron. Um, And um, how about Grand Rapids? How about Kalamazoo? Do they draw from aquifers or do they draw from Lake Michigan or what? I believe, like Grand Rapids, I believe they were mostly well water and drawn most likely out of the Saginaw Aquifer. Um, the Saginaw Aquifer runs from the Saginaw Bay, obviously, and kind of goes and meets over in Lake Michigan. We're kind of set in a unique position here where we're at, where the aquifer kind of splits off, runs to the south, it runs right through us. And from Lansing, it kind of runs a little bit to the north, northwest, and then cuts across and then goes all the way over towards Lake Michigan. What is our water supply situation here in Michigan. I know uh, over the years it seemed to me that many uh, politicians in Michigan, much of the general population, obviously a lot of environmentalists are concerned that uh, Michigan is at risk of somehow losing a lot of its water, that somehow maybe 
state governments in the Southwest are going to run dry and they're going to stick a huge straw up into Michigan. And there's going to be a giant sucking sound and they're going to suck Michigan's water away from us. Is this realistic? I mean, what is our situation with our water here in Michigan? Yeah, I, I don't see that as being realistic. Um, as long as you have water on the Great Lakes, you're going to have the aquifer. Um, you know, it's there. Yes, you get drawdown. Um, enough wells run in a certain area, you can actually kind of start changing the direction of flow of the aquifer, but it's, it's constantly going to be refilled. Uh, you look up in northern Michigan where you have a lot of sand, you know, your regeneration rate of your rainfall is 12-plus inches a year, which is huge. Um, certain areas where you have more of a clay layer, the regeneration rate isn't as high, but you still have the rainwaters, you have the Great Lakes. You know, Michigan really is an abundant source of fresh water. Well, what about the situation up in Nuevo County where Nestle has been uh, drawing water out of the ground there, and environmentalists really have been upset and concerned with Nestle uh, believing that somehow it is profiting at the expense of Michigan citizens uh, and that they're sucking water out of the ground that will never be replenished. I mean, is this realistic? Is Nestle really a villain in this situation or not? In my personal opinion, I don't believe so. I went to a groundwater conference uh, about a year ago, not quite a year ago, and Nestle was one of the speakers there. The amount of testing that they do, um, I mean, it's they went through the whole process just like anybody else, you know, to file for a permit to draw water. They're limited on how much water they can draw. It's all monitored by the DEQ. You know, for them to think that they're getting free water, well, there's a lot of testing and a lot of monitoring. They do more monitoring than most municipalities on the groundwater level, the surface water level, streams, creeks, and all that. They really monitor that stuff to make sure they're not harming the ecosystem. So I don't think they're getting free water at taxpayer expense, in my opinion. Okay, we're going to have to take a short break here, but we'll be back to talk more about the Michigan water situation and Randy Sida's role in it, and also an organization called National Rural Water Association, which is going to have a water rally down in Washington, D.C., I think next week. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Randy Sida. He is the manager of Westside Water in Lansing Township, Michigan. Uh, Randy Sida, we were talking when we had to take a break about Nestle and Nuevo County, and uh, you feel they're not... Uh, being fairly depicted uh, when people uh, contend that they're villains and that they're sucking us dry and stealing our water. Uh, in fact, maybe they're an asset. What do you think? Yeah, I, from what I understood from the information that I've seen on that, and you know, we get a little bit more information than what the media puts out. 
Um, Nestle's really monitoring a lot of the ecology up there and the ecosystems and the levels of the of the, the swamps, the rivers. You know, water levels have been rising, which, you know, people say they're kind of giving them a hard time that they're destroying the ecosystem and killing off stuff. They're actually bringing the water levels back down to where they're supposed to be, that bringing the swamps back is bringing the ecosystems back. Um, I mean, they're, they're really doing monitoring everything. They have water flow sensors. They have, they're, they're spending thousands and thousands of dollars of sampling and testing and monitoring all over that area. So it's really bringing some of the ecosystem back from what I've been seeing. Um, I think they're really doing a good, good thing up where they're at. They're not getting free water. They're, they still have to, they, they monitor, they spend thousands of dollars every year just to monitor. Um, the the theory that they're getting free water because they only pay two hundred dollars for a permit that's a normal permit fee for the DEQ to get the permit to draw water. I believe last I knew they were approved to pull four hundred gallons a minute out of each well, and they're only pumping two hundred fifty gallons a minute because that's what they need. So they're really monitoring what they're doing. They're monitoring the water levels. If Groundwater level drops because of the drought. They're not drawing as much water. So they're just, they're really doing everything they're supposed to be doing and then so. Okay. You are a member, as I understand it, of something called the National Rural Water Association. Will you explain what that is? And I think you've got something called a water rally next week down in Washington, D.C. Will you can tell us what you're going to be doing down there? Yeah, the, the, National Rural Water Association is an overall national association based out of uh, Washington, D.C., or they have big buildings in Washington, D.C., and that's where the bulk of our stuff is. Each individual state has a local rural water association. I'm from Michigan. I'm actually on the board of directors for the Michigan Rural Water Association. Well, every year we have National Rural Water Rules, what they call National Rural Water Association Water Rally, where members of each state association go to Washington, D.C., and we go and we talk to as many congressmen, senators, uh, anybody that will listen to us, and we discuss and talk to them about we try and get there before the appropriation goes through because that's we get a lot of our funding through federal government. A lot of it's uh, low-interest loans, some grants. Um, we rely heavily on the Farm Bill. The Farm Bill is ex- absolutely huge to the water industry, water and wastewater industry. We get a lot of our low-interest loans, which allow us to have the money, because it's expensive to replace infrastructure. The average cost in our area is about a million dollars a mile to replace water main. Well, unless we have outrageous water rates, we have to get loans. We can't just go to a bank and get a loan. So we get the loans through the federal or state government. They're low-interest loans. We pay them back. And they have less than, a, on average, they're less than a 2% default rate. So the federal government and state governments love it because they're loaning money out. They're making interest on it. It's minimal interest. Utilities have money to replace infrastructure that they need to do, and we just keep moving on. It's just a revolving fund, so the money comes in and out. Um, you know, there's money in the 
that's in the EPA in their budget, and it's set in the Safe Drinking Water Act. That money is there, and we go to Washington, D.C., and we talk to our congressmen. We try and get them to write us letters to require the EPA to spend this amount of money on training for operators. Licensed operators are, you know, as everybody probably knows, we're in a situation right now where a large portion of a drinking water, licensed drinking water operators and wastewater operators are retiring. And we're, National Rural Water has started a, a, a program to try and, apprenticeship program to try and get more people involved in the water industry. We're losing licensed operators and we don't have people coming in to get licensed and operate these systems. So we, we're struggling. How many uh, representatives from the various states, the 50 states, do you think are going to be at this water rally next week altogether? I mean, total number of bodies. Uh, for Rural Water Association? Yeah. Uh, I think we sit right around 2,000, 1,500 people. Um, Michigan, we're sending, I think, seven people all together. And we'll split up into groups, and we'll go and we set up appointments. Our executive director from Michigan Rural Water Association, Tim Newman, is phenomenal with this. He he knows the system. He knows the congressman. Who is he Tim Newman? Who is he? Uh, he's our executive director of the Michigan Rural Water Association. He where, basically runs Michigan Rural Water Association. Where is the headquarters? Uh, the headquarters now is in, uh, right over here in Okemos, just... Uh, on the east side of Lansing. Well, you say there are 2,000 people going to be down in Washington at the water rally, and Michigan is only sending seven? Yeah, there's, I mean, you have a lot of different people. Some states, like Oklahoma, they're one of the founders of Rural Water Association, and, and they'll have 20 people there. Um, different size states have different, you know, send different people. Um, you have the national rural water that's there, and we have each state has a director for nas- a national director that sits on the national rural water association board. So each state is is represented, and there's just lots of people, and we just bombard the capital, the house buildings, and the senate buildings. You're just bouncing from office to office, talking to these congressmen, and doing everything you can to try and explain the importance of maintaining our funding for the utilities. Regulations change daily. As we all know, the new lead copper rule is changing even my department drastically. And we have to keep up with this, and everything costs money. Well, you guys must be pretty effective from Michigan if you're sending only seven people. I mean, we're a state... With a lot bigger population, for instance, than Oklahoma, and yet they're sending three times as many people. But apparently, Michigan has done very well uh, by the various uh, federal agencies who sent money out to the states. I think maybe Debbie Stabenow could help because she is the, uh, I think, minority leader of the Senate Agriculture Committee, and that farm bill was very important, right? Absolutely. Uh, Senator Sabinow has been extremely helpful and vital with this farm bill. She really does push hard to get this stuff into the farm bill. And it, it, 
really helps us. The Farm Bill is absolutely vital to municipal utilities. We get a lot of monies from there that help us maintain and keep our systems updated. We're constantly updating our system. We're supposed to be theoretically replacing 1% to 2% of our system every year. And you figure we have 26 miles of water main, you know, you start doing the math, that's a lot of money at a million dollars a mile. That's a lot of money every year that we have to invest into our system. Uh, look, we could keep talking about this, and I'd like to. You want to stay for another 10 minutes? I I can talk all day about this stuff. <laughs> and I, I really, I really push it because before I got into this industry, I had nothing. I, I knew absolutely nothing about water except I turn my tap on and I get water. Okay, we'll let you explain a little bit more about that. We'll be back in a minute. We got to take a short break. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with Randy Sida. He is the manager of Westside Water in Lansing Township uh, surrounding the city of Lansing. Uh, And he was telling us uh, how he got into the water business. Uh, You know, when a lot of little boys are growing up, they dream of being president or maybe playing center field for the Detroit Tigers. Were you dreaming about being uh, a a water manager in Lansing when you were growing up? No, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, Well, how did you get into this anyway? I was was actually building a house. I was a builder. I'm a licensed builder on top of everything, and uh, I was building doing some building in Lansing Township and uh, police officers kind of giving me a hard time and kind of messing with me a little bit. And then he, we got to be friends. He told me about a position in the water department. Building was moving a little bit downhill during the, our little recession that we had. So I ended up applying and interviewing and got into the water department. I really didn't know a whole lot about it. My manager at the time was, very instrumental in me going in and pushed me hard to, he was teaching me everything he knew. He'd been, he retired with 37 years then. And I went in and I started taking my state certification exams. I got licensed to uh, S1 for water distribution, which is the highest level you can get, which means I could operate any water system of any size as long as the distribution system in the state of Michigan. Um, I've received some, uh, limited treatment license and I just kind of move up the ladder into the manager's position. Well, how long ago was it that you really got into, you know, being certified? Was this like 10, 15 years ago? I started in the water department, Lansing Township water department 15 years ago. I got my first license within six months, second and, and, uh, one year, uh, I had my S2 license in two years, which allowed me to run this system, and I was listed as the backup operator in charge, and that's when I was promoted into the foreman position. And within I, four years, I had my S1 license, and when my boss retired, I moved up into the manager's position from there. I was foreman for about five years when I took over the manager's position, 
in about 10 years. And I've been about five years now. I've been manager over here. You know, I think they needed you up in Flint back when they had this problem <laughs> three or four years ago. They didn't have people running the Flint water plant who were really competent. And they've gotten into a lot of trouble because of that. And I'm just curious. I mean, what do you think about what happened in Flint? Is this, you know, kind of an accidental thing uh, because of everything that happened that people know about uh, the emergency manager's decision to switch to the Flint River uh, after they pulled out of the uh, Detroit water system? Uh, You know, was that unique is unique as it's been depicted as being as everybody else's infrastructure around the state and all these other cities, whether it's Grand Rapids or Saginaw or Muskegon or Kalamazoo or wherever, are they in pretty good shape compared to Flint? Or is there accidents waiting to happen in those communities too? The Flint just had happened to them first. Well, I think, I think Flint, in my opinion, and I have to be careful on what I say. Um, in my opinion, I believe Flint was a breakdown from the highest levels to the lowest levels. Um, There's a lot of issues, a lot of changes. Um, There's some stuff that should have been done that wasn't done. There's some stuff that was done that shouldn't have been done. Um, I I, I personally don't feel that they were quite ready to start treating you and sending their own water. Um, There's the whole, the lead stuff. You know, unfortunately, a lot of those lines were privately owned. Um, there are a lot of service lines going up to the houses or from the curb stop at the road to the house is technically considered a private line in a lot of municipalities. Um, Lansing Board of Water and Light, they had a lot of large service lines, I think worse than probably the city of Flint, but the Lansing Board of Water and Light with where they were at. So they went through and they had a very strict, uh, replacement program set up, and they now have all their lead service lines that they're known replaced. Um, there's other cities, and I'm not going to name any cities, but there are other cities that have just as bad, or if not worse, lead issues than the city of Flint, but they have a plan. They're working on them. I think the biggest problem with Flint was is they didn't have the funding they're in a situation where they didn't have the money to replace the stuff. They really didn't have a plan in place to replace these lines. So it's just a, it's just an odd matter of, I don't know, I think it was a breakdown from the top, highest level to the lowest level, pretty much all I can say. I mean, I, right. I don't know what else do, to say Do you think uh, that these other communities you say have plans in place now, uh, perhaps if Flint didn't, when Flint encountered uh, its troubles two, three, four years ago, it, it, have the other communities uh, put these plans in place because of Flint, do you think? I mean, in a sense, bad as it was, was Flint kind of a canary in the coal mine reminding everybody around the state, we got real major infrastructure problems. Uh, would these other communities and the state as a whole have been responsive and responsible as they seem to be now trying to get their act together, although they always need more money uh, anyway, or what? Well, I think a lot of them had plans in place prior to Flint. Um, Flint was kind of a blessing in disguise for water utilities because it kind of put the infrastructure on the limelight. It, it brought it all out into the open. Now, the problem is, is, 
people see the roads and they push the roads. They they're hitting potholes and road infrastructure is huge. Bridges, they see concrete chipping off the bridges, and this needs to get fixed. This needs to get fixed. Well, all your water utilities are five, six foot underground. Nobody sees them. Nobody realizes how bad they really are. So when they don't realize how bad they are, nobody thinks about it when it comes to infrastructure replacement. Flint kind of, it was a blessing in disguise. It brought it all out in the open and it got it being talked about that says, this is what we're talking about. We need help. We need help funding. We need these low interest loans. We need this stuff. We have to replace our infrastructure. And without help, we cannot do it. So it, it really was a blessing in disguise when it all boiled down on what could be done and what was helping. Yeah, maybe, Flint maybe really helped us all. Yeah, maybe there was a ripple effect in the sense that Flint got so much publicity, not just in Michigan, but nationally and even internationally. Uh, do you think that has helped you with Congress uh, when you have this water rally? Um, every year you go down there, you're going down next week. Uh, are you finding that Congress is far more knowledgeable about this, uh, keyed in on it, noticing it, uh, what you're talking about than they were before Flint? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we noticed a huge change. The first year I, I've been to D.C. every year for since I've been on the Board of Directors for Michigan Oil Water Association. I've gone to D.C. every year. Now, a lot of times we really have to talk to them and really have to get them to understand what we're talking about. After Flint happened, that first year we went down to the water rally. Every congressman I was talking to, I know lots of different people from lots of different state rural water associations, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Oklahoma City, Arkansas. They go in and talk to their Congress people and senators, and the first thing that would get brought up is Flint. So it really brought things to the limelight. When we're asking for money, this was the first time that I'm aware of that we get our full fundings that we actually asked for. So it, it was huge. It really, actually, some of the fundings that we have, there's multiple, multiple different layers of different funding. Some of the fundings, we actually got more money than what we asked for. So, yeah, it, it really brought it to the limelight. People were meeting with more Congress people and senators. A lot of times we meet with the actual aides, not the Congress people. We were actually meeting with more of the Congress people. They were more interested, more, they were listening more to what we were saying. They took in more information. They were making more notes. They really paid attention to what we were saying, and then I think it really made a huge difference and a huge impact on everybody across the board. When you look at our infrastructure needs here in Michigan, and as you know, I think uh, former Governor Snyder put together a committee, uh, a commission to look at our needs. And I think we're running out of time. But what percentage of everything uh, in the infrastructure that we need in Michigan is related to water? Maybe half, do you think? A third? What? Between wastewater water and wastewater, I'd say probably 50% is water-wastewater related. Wastewater is also. Very good. Listen, we could keep talking. Uh, what you've given us is uh, very informative, very insightful. Really appreciate it. Randy Saida, who is manager of Westside Water in Lansing, is our special guest today on The Political Insider. Thank you, Randy Saida. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate your time.